Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Camaro, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It's Tuesday, January 11th, 2011, uh, 10 p.m. Out, out east, 7 p.m. out in the west, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and we're kicking off a new year here at Brandon's Buzz, and it's great to have you with us. A bit later on tonight, I'm bringing you a brief conversation I had a few weeks ago with Academy Award-nominated actor Eric Roberts, but first up tonight... He left behind his freewheeling, full-time, big-city legal career to return to his first love, writing. He's just released his latest work, a young adult novel entitled The Water Wars, and he's come by the buzz tonight to tell us all about it. It's quite a thrill to introduce you to the incredible Cameron Strocker. Uh, set the table here. Give me the 60-second bio on, on Cameron Strocker. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. Sure, sure. I uh, I was born and raised in the suburbs of New York, and uh, I always wanted to be a writer as a kid all the way through college, but my parents forced me to go to law school, <laughs> so I went to law school first. Um, were there lawyers they, in the family, or were you the... No, you the, no, the no. I was, the, yeah, I was the first and only, actually. My father's a scientist. Uh, I think they wanted me to be a doctor, but uh, then they realized I wasn't any good at math or science. <laughs> So then they pushed me into law. But I I, uh, I went to law school. I worked for about a year as a lawyer, and then I applied and got into the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is a, you know a pretty well-known MFA program. And I was there for four years, um, started writing my first book while I was there, met my wife while I was out there, but then came back to New York and, and started practicing law because I realized you know every writer has a day job, and uh, law would be my day job. So now it is. I'm actually pretty lucky. I, I have a great law job. I, I'm a media lawyer, essentially. I represent uh, newspapers, magazines, television shows, websites, um, and so that's my day job. I do like libel and privacy review and media litigation, copyright wow. stuff, um, but you know, then I also write. And uh, this book, The Water Wars, was my first, it's my first young adult novel. I have, uh, I have one other novel and uh, two nonfiction books. Can you walk me through a typical day in terms of media law, in terms of you know, what's involved in the process? I mean, what do you do on a, on a, yeah, on a daily sure. basis? Actually, that's a good question because today was a, a, so far has been a pretty interesting day. I have uh, I have letters from Tom Cruise's lawyer and uh, Britney Spears' boyfriend, Jason Trawick's lawyer. 
Uh, I represent Star Magazine among of my other clients, and uh, both of those lawyers are sending letters on behalf of their clients claiming that uh, they were defamed by stories that Star published. Yeah. So this morning I spent uh, some time writing letters to, back to both of them, telling them, you know, I respectfully disagree and uh, we stand by our story. Um, later in the day, as Star prepares its stories for next week, I'll read those stories, make sure none of them are going to get us sued. Uh, I have other clients uh, who who I have a one of, one of my clients produces the show Dog the Bounty Hunter, the reality oh, sure. show, yeah. And so uh, they 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 send me clips and uh, you know eventually complete uh, episodes. And I'll again I'll watch those. I'll I'll give them my advice about whether there are any problems, whether anything in there could get them sued. Um, so that's that's sort of my typical day. You know. When you tell people that you represent Star Magazine, and you know they, they've taken great pains over the past few years to, you know, kind of distance themselves from Inquirer and Globe, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the 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 tabloid moniker, if you will. But mm-hmm. when you tell people you represent Star Magazine, what kind of reaction do you get? <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, you're you're right. I mean, the people who don't know Star uh, want to know about uh, whether the aliens have uh, have lifted anybody <laughs> off. <laughs> Into exactly. space lately, right? Yeah, but you know, Star had a makeover maybe four or five years ago, and it's really sort of a mainstream celebrity magazine now, like like Us or Life and sure. Style. Um, you know, it's got the usual sort of gossipy stuff in it, but you know, most of the stuff we publish is true, and most of it is pretty well is pretty well researched and uh, sourced. You know, they they might give me a little bit of a hard time, but then they remember that uh, all the stories that you know the various celebrities and politicians have claimed aren't. True true actually turn out to be true. So, Absolutely. you know, in the end, I think uh, we do a pretty good job of getting the stories right. You know, reading up on you uh, in the past couple of days, you know, kind of preparing for this, you really have a fascinating story. I mean, you, you graduated from Harvard Law School, as you said. You kind of worked your way up the food chain as a, a big city legal eagle. But, you know, concurrently to that, you were also going in and working on your writing. And, and uh, you know, I, was the, I mean, you said you always wanted to be a writer. I'm wondering if the desire was always there or if it was something that sort of crept up on you over time after you, you know, started this other career. No, I really did always want to be a writer. I mean, I, even in high school, I was writing stuff. Actually, I wanted to be an actor or a writer. Um, and by the time I got to college, I realized I was a really bad actor. <laughs> so I focused on writing. But, you know, I took all the creative writing classes. You know, I was in the sort of advanced creative writing class in college. And I just I just didn't have the nerve to, to go out on my own as a writer. And, you know, as I said, I had a lot of parental pressure to get a quote unquote real job. Although, sure. you know, I, I'm joking about that a little bit. I mean, the fact is most writers that you meet have day jobs, you know, whether they're teaching or waiting tables or whatever. And uh, that was the one thing I realized when I got to Iowa, that I was lucky that I had this day job that was pretty interesting and I could do a lot with it. Um, and I just needed to remember that, you know, I, in my heart, I really was a writer. Um, but that I was doing this other thing that was pretty enjoyable. And I think over the years I've been pretty lucky in that I've been able to try to blend the two. Uh, you know, I also think you, you have to make sacrifices. You know, I decided not to become a partner at a big law firm like some of my colleagues did because that would have been, you know, that would have been impossible. I couldn't have written and done that. Um, sure. I chose to work part-time for a while. Well, I had a family and, and, you know, all the other stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, 
you know, you can't have it all. You just sort of have to figure out what's really most important to you. Uh, to me, it always was my writing, but I, I want, you know, I wanted to have something else that was interesting and and paid the bills. You mentioned Iowa. Talk to me about Iowa. I, there was a book years ago, a great book called The Workshop, all about oh, yeah. the yeah, MFA program there. And, uh-huh. and uh, you know, I have a friend who a couple of years ago went through the Michener Center, the MFA program here at the Michener Center here in Austin. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know, uh, talk to me about the environment in, in Iowa at that school. I mean, was it super competitive? Was it? Talk to me about the people that, that, you, that you went there with and, and just the environment that you came up in through there. Iowa was a great place. It really was. I, uh, it changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, when you're when you're a young writer and you're living in a city and you go out to parties and people want to know what you do and you say you're writing and they say, oh, have I read any of your stuff? And then you're kind of embarrassed and you say, oh no, no, I'm a loser. I haven't published anything. You know, it just it's very hard to be a writer in those early years. And Iowa just kind of. It makes you feel like a writer. You know, you're in this place where everybody that you're with is writing, where people value it, where the university itself, I mean, that program is like the jewel of the university. Sure. So there's sure. this there's this sense when you're in Iowa City that you're, you know, you're really special. I mean, you may be a loser and you may not have published anything, but you, but you don't feel that way. And yeah, it was competitive, but, you know, I think that the competitiveness of it comes from people's own desires to try to achieve. It's not like there are other the other people there are, are cutting you down and, and, and stomping on you. You know, the teachers are critical. The teachers definitely take your work apart, and, and sometimes they make you feel really bad, but they do it in a, in a constructive way. And I really, I look at Iowa, it was the time, it was the time that changed my life because I went there sort of thinking of myself as a writer, but maybe not really seeing myself as a writer. And I left that place knowing I was a writer and wow. knowing that, you know, whatever I did in my life after that, I, I would be a writer. You know, the music industry is in a terrified state right now with, you know, rampant piracy and trying to come to grips with the chaos of the digital revolution and, you know, film and television is going through a similar bumpy transition with all these video sharing sites. Talk to me about books with the, you know, with the Kindle and the Nook and the iPad, of course, and iPhone. You know, all these marvelous devices that are aiming largely to take the place of books. Is is publishing going through a similar kind of upheaval to the other entertainment uh, medium? I think so. Uh, although you haven't quite seen it yet, I just read an article somewhere about the the number of titles that are actually pirated, the number of ebooks that are actually pirated. And right now it's still very, very small. But I have to say, I think it's because the technology is not quite widely accepted yet. I think people in the book industry are worried about it, and I think they should be worried about it because you know, once you sort of divorce the book from the jacket and the cover, and it's really just the text, which is what ebooks really are, uh, people are going to start wanting to get those things for free. And, you know, they're just digital files like anything else. They're pretty easy to circulate and give to friends and, you know, rip off the internet. And, you know, although the publishing industry is trying to protect it, you know, we know that technology is hard to keep in the bottle. You know, we've seen that in the music business and the TV business. So you're right. I think publishers maybe are not quite as worried about it yet as they should be, but they should definitely be worried about it. And and as an author, I'm worried about it. You know, I don't I don't want my book circulating around, you know, for free. 
this is how I, you know, how I make a living. Sure. You know, I, I think that that one thing that your industry has going for it is is that books still have a kind of a romance about them. I mean, you know, uh, there's something about holding a book in your hand and smelling yeah. the paper, feeling it in your hands, and yep. you know, it's something tangible in your hands. Yeah, but that but the ebook is is uh, is quickly uh, eliminating that or undermining that. You know, my daughter um, is 11 and she's not really into reading. And then I got her a Kindle. She reads like a maniac now. And I think it's just there's something about the screen that she connects to, and she doesn't connect to the hard copy book. I've been thinking about my book. Uh, the Water Wars has such a great, beautiful cover on it, and I've been realizing that the ebook is basically going to do for covers what you know CDs did for album covers. Yeah, and we used to spend absolutely. hours looking at album covers, and now that's really not part of the experience anymore because you know you, you download something off of iTunes, you don't have an album cover. And I think the same thing's happening and going to happen with books that. As the new generation grows up, they're not going to have that same experience. They're not going to expect the same thing from the book, and uh, we're going to lose that, that that part of it. So, is it terrifying to be a writer trying to make a living in this kind of environment right now? I mean, you know, we're hearing stories that, at least at the major houses, the midlist author is essentially a severely endangered species. So, is it is it scary right now trying to do this? Yeah, this is the times that I'm really grateful that my parents did make me go to law school because. <laughs> You know, I, seriously, I, I would not want to be supporting a family uh, as a as a writer right now. It's definitely, I mean, if it's it, it's always not been great, but I think we're we're in a really not great period right now. And actually, Thank God you know, for Britney Spears and Tom Cruise. And... That's right, that's right. And actually, interesting, <laughs> you, you know, all all those media issues that you talk about, all those rights issues and and stuff like that. I mean, that you know, those are the things I deal with as a media lawyer. And that's a you know that's a really exciting, booming field because technology is changing stuff so rapidly, and the law is trying to catch up and trying to evolve. So it's interesting, you know, it's interesting that like in one part of my life, that's kind of undermining my career, and the other part of my life, it's it's making it more interesting and exciting. So let's talk about the water wars. You know, this this uh, the future that you paint here is pretty bleak, and I'm not so sure that it won't end up being so far from you know the ultimate reality if we don't start taking some action immediately. Mm -hmm. What was the genesis of this project for you? Well, the first thing I really wanted to do is my son was 12, and I really wanted to write something that he would read because he knew I'd written these other books. He thought they were boring, you know, and I I wanted to. I wanted to just sort of grab his attention and, and 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 have him, you know, enjoy something that I wrote. So I began to sort of think about that genre, and I've always liked, you know, near future dystopian type novels, you know, and movies like a Blade Runner, one of my favorite movies. You know, I love these movies and books, you know, about the world in which some some current problem sort of runs amok. Uh, and and really, you know, as I began to sort of look around in the world, it was obvious to me that the biggest sort of problem that we're looking at that people are not paying that much attention to is water, you know, water scarcity and, and water resources. And I just, you know, I began to think of what would a world look like where we didn't have all the fresh water that we uh, have come to expect. You know, it was a big story a couple of years ago coming out of Atlanta. I mean, that they're basically out of water. And, you know, oh, yeah. You know, the irony of these things is staggering. I mean, you know, just in the last five years, we've had a major American city largely wiped off the map by water, and yet other mm -hmm. American cities that literally 
can't find enough water to satisfy the requirements of all their residents. I mean, yeah, yeah. How can it be possible that we're on this floating sphere, which is two thirds water, and yet we're running out of water? Yeah, well, you 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 know, you point out a good uh, dichotomy, which is you know we've got the ocean and and you know the salt water that still is all around us, and you know can flood cities and towns and do terrible damage. But 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 fresh water is actually quite rare, and you know something like there's a, something like only three percent of the world's water is actually drinkable, and two percent of that is frozen away in the uh, in the ice caps, the polar caps. So you've really got about only one percent left, and and then so much of that 1% either rushes down rivers and goes into the seas, it gets polluted. Um, as countries become more industrialized and wealthier, they use more water. So Atlanta is a really good example of that. Or California, you know, Lake Mead, which uh, feeds most of California, is at its lowest level ever. And that's because, you know, as as populations grow, as cities become bigger, as they become more industrial, they need more water. You know, India and China now are using more water than they've ever used before. Um, and there's just not enough water to to sustain all those people. So the reservoirs drop, you know, the, the lakes drop, the rivers drop. And also what happens when underground aquifers drop, uh, they get polluted because salt water and, and dangerous chemicals, heavy metals, they leach into the aquifers once once they go below a certain level. So once you've brought an aquifer down below a certain level, you will never, ever be able to use it again. First of all, it takes years for it to refill, but but most important, it's so polluted and, and dangerous that you really can't drink from it anymore. I think the alarming thing is that a lot of our rural areas are basically disappearing. I mean, they're being they're being overrun by urban sprawl, and you know the 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 thing that you allude to. I mean, these these rural rivers and lakes that used to be perfectly sufficient in satisfying all the water needs are now being you know overrun by people, and it's uh, it's it's quite alarming what you say. You know, it's getting harder and harder to find that fresh water. And also, um, you know, countries uh, divert it and dam it. You know, you've got, uh, you know, for example, if you look at the Mideast or, or, or the Near East, you know, you've got water that comes down rivers that's supposed to irrigate lands, provide fresh drinking water, sanitation for everybody. But you've got upstream countries damming it, diverting it for agriculture and irrigation. And then suddenly the stuff that's coming downstream is much, much less, and it's just not enough for everyone, uh, you know, who it's flowing. To. So all of these things are creating scarcity and shortage, and, and, and that creates political tensions and, you know, war and strife sure. and, you know, all these things. So these are, you know, and, and a lot of this stuff is not theoretical. I mean, you know, uh, countries have gone to war over water. There are, there are right now disputes uh, between uh, India and Pakistan over water. There have been disputes between Israel and its neighbors over water. I mean, these are, you know, these are real, real problems that are happening right now. Talk to me about how you set out to research this book. I mean, did you talk to uh, city mayors? Did you talk to uh, who did you talk to, and how did you how did you set up pro the process of you know researching this no this novel? I just am a reader. I like uh, books. So I took a couple books out on, you know, water management, water scarcity. Uh, there are a bunch of books out right now. Uh, one of them I think was called like uh, Not One More Drop uh, about all these problems. You know, if you go onto the web, onto the internet, you'll see that there are a lot of kind of grassroots groups that are writing about these problems of water scarcity. Uh, it, it's a pretty big issue, although it hasn't really gotten into the mainstream yet. So I read a lot of that stuff. Um, 
but you know, at the end of the day, I really wanted the story to be about uh, the two kids, the brother and the sister, and uh, this mysterious boy, Kai. So once I sort of had uh, the plausibility of the world down, and that was really all I needed. I just needed to know, you know, is this world plausible? You know, could we really be living in a world in which water is very scarce, it's been diverted, uh, man is controlling weather, you know, the things that I sort of imagined. And once I knew that was scientifically plausible, now the rest of the book was just, a, you know, it was an imaginative exercise, putting these these kids in this place with this mystery and, and seeing what would happen. So how do we solve these crises that are, uh, you know, uh, enveloping us around the shortage of water? How do we solve this? It's a really good question and a really hard problem. I, you know, it's like so many of our resources. We we have to um, we have to value it at its true worth. I mean, for example, you know, you go into your home, you turn on the tap, you don't even think about it. You know, you take a shower, maybe it's 30 minutes long, you don't even think about it. You get your bill, you know, maybe it's a hundred bucks for four months. You know, you don't. So it, you have no incentive to. To uh, conserve water, every now and then maybe there's a drought in your community, and people on the radio say, "Don't wash your car, don't water your lawn." But you know, then it then it goes away. Meanwhile, you know, there are people in India who literally aren't even getting enough water to drink. You know, they certainly don't have enough water to flush their toilets. So how do we give them the water that we have that's so cheap? Uh, and provided to them for whom it's so expensive and so dear. And I think, you know, you've got to value it at what it's really worth. I think, you know, people respond to conservation uh, and management of resources when they have to pay the true cost of what those things are worth. So, you know, if if we weren't paying $100 every four months, but we were paying $1,000 every four months, we might think a little bit before we let that shower run for 30 minutes. Um, you know, we have to change our behavior. There, I'm sh there is enough water in the world. It's just that, you know, people are using it and wasting it while others are, you know, going without. Literally dying from going without. Dying, dying. And again, it's not just, you know, water is not just for drinking. Very little of the water we use is for drinking. Most of the water we use is for agriculture, something like 70% of the water. So if you don't have enough water for agriculture, you don't have enough water for food. And if you don't have food, you know, you have starvation. The other big source of water is sanitation. You know, you got to, people go to the bathroom. And if you don't have water to flush away that stuff, you end up with, you know, terrible diseases and dysentery and, you know, horrible things happening. So, you know, it's, it, water is connected to, to everything. Um, just a very small part of it is about drinking. You know, we touched on this earlier, but uh, tell me, talk to me about what you read. I mean, which authors have inspired you over the course of your career? That's a good question. You know, I, I you know, maybe as this book sort of suggests, I've always been a huge science fiction fan. You know, as a kid, I read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. Uh, when I was older, I read um, uh, William Gibson's books, Neuromancer and his other books. Um, but, you know, I also like a lot of uh, contemporary authors. David Foster Wallace is just, I love him. I think he's terrific. You know, I read The Road about a year before I started reading this book. So I'm sure I was influenced by that book by Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> I, you know, I like to reread stuff because my son now is 14. I'm I'm like reading a lot of the stuff that he was reading or or that he should be reading. So I just reread uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and Catcher oh, wow. in the, okay. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, great great classics. You know, um, 
The Great Gatsby, S. Scott Fitzgerald, For Whom the Bell Tolls, you know, all those books that we were supposed to have read in high school and we've probably forgotten, uh, I've gone back and, and, and reread. So I, I don't know. I read a lot of different stuff in a lot of different genres. I actually, you know, believe it or not, I actually like chick lit. <laughs> my, my wife periodically gives me these books. Like, I don't know how she does it. I love those books. Um, my daughter is reading the um, Pretty Little Liars series. And uh, I, I've read the first two of those books now. She's actually reading them on her Kindle, which is also my Kindle. So I'm reading them with her. Um, so a lot of different stuff. So what's on the horizon for, for Cameron Strucker? Do you have another book in the pipeline, or are you taking it easy for a while? Uh, I'm always writing. I'm always writing. Right now I actually have a nonfiction book that I'm, I'm actually under contract to write for Random House, and it's it's another one of my um my love's running. It's about uh, the running boom and the 1970s. So I'm sort of writing about that period in American history when you know we had Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers and Alberto Salazar and Joan Benoit and just all the best distance runners in the world. Uh, and so I'm I'm kind of maybe two thirds of the way done with that book. And then I don't know. I'm hoping I'd love this genre, this YA genre. So you know, if if the Water Wars does well, I'm hoping somebody asks me to write a sequel and you know a prequel and turn it into a movie and you know then I'll quit my day job. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm going to do my part. I have Amazon links up at up at my website, and and when this show airs, I'll have an Amazon link up there. And I, I tell you what, I you know I started this show two years ago, and and I'm a <clears throat> I'm a budding writer myself. I've got a couple of unfinished novels on the shelf, and when I started this show, I wanted to include authors, and you know I've been kind of it's been hard to get my foot in that door, and so I've dedicated this year to bringing more authors on my show, and I appreciate you stepping forward and being one of the first. Oh, thank you. I thank you so much for, for talking to me and asking such smart questions. I appreciate it. You know, I recently had a chance to chat with one of my favorite actors who is best remembered for his Oscar-nominated role in Runaway Train and dozens of other riveting films. He's currently seen as hotshot lawyer Vance Abrams on The Young and the Restless, as well as the current season of Dr. Drew's VH1 series Celebrity Rehab. And the great actor Eric Roberts popped in here a few weeks ago to discuss all of this and so much more. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of yours, and, and I always have been. And I'll tell you one of the things I love about you is you're not afraid to do a little bit of everything. You do movies. You do independent film. You've done Broadway. You did a, a hilarious sitcom a few years back. You're guest starring on Chuck this week. You're kicking ass as a, as a freewheeling legal eagle on Young and the Restless. When you were coming up back in the day, what you do now would have been considered career suicide, I think. Yeah. Are all those dumb walls between the genres of entertainment finally falling down, or, or have you just kind of reached the point in your career or in your life where you just don't give a fig anymore what Hollywood thinks about about your professional choices? But I always broke down all those walls. After my first big movie for Paramount Pictures, I turned down a three-picture deal, and I came back into PBS, a thing called Paul's Case for the, the American Short Story series. It's just I've always gone where I love the characters, where I love the work. I don't go for the for the format of, of a movie starism. And uh, I also have a, have, a, have a very brave wife, Eliza Roberts, who uh, supports that. She's been my wife for 18 years, and she uh, supports that kind of behavior. You know, I, I have to tell you, I'm a soap fan dyed in the wool, and I'm loving the work that you've been doing this summer on Young and the Restless. Uh, a lot of newer fans may not know that you actually started on soaps 30 years ago. I'm wondering if you can talk about how they're different nowadays. They're, they're the exact same format. You get your rewrites, 
the night before you shoot, and you get one rehearsal and one take. It's always been the same. And uh, the same producer who fired me from Another World in 1976 is producing this show. But um, they always wanted me to play in Psychos on uh, on Soap, so I've always turned them down. And my wife put it out there that if you offer him somebody smart and successful and well-dressed and he gets to keep the clothes, he'll do it. And they offered me all the above on this show. So, wow. so I'm doing it and having a great time, and uh, it's a great character. He's really, really smart, and I love him to death. And uh, his name is Vance Abrams. It's the uh, number one soap in America, you bet. Young and the Restless, and uh, I'm having a blast. So I take it you're sticking around for, for a minute or two. I will stay with this job as long as they'll keep me. I love everything about it, and I love all my fellow actors. Everybody is so cool on this show. And, of course, I get to work with the great Michael Muni, who is a fantastic actor. And, Absolutely. Uh, if, if you watch him on that show these days, he very much has that has that charming rogue thing that you trademarked 30 years ago. Yeah, but you know what? I am my biggest fan. He's actually better at it than I am. I love that guy. <laughs> He's a great actor. And uh, I am proud to be his lawyer, i got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, your old buddy Mickey Rourke a couple of years ago was touting you as one of his favorite actors and, and as someone that he was rooting for to have a similar comeback to his. But, you know, i got to tell you, looking over your filmography in preparation for this, you, you really haven't gone anywhere, sir. I mean, you know, it may not have been inside the harsh glare of the, of the punishing spotlight, but you've consistently worked as an actor for multiple decades now, and, and that's something that only very few actors can claim, I think. That's all I really ever wanted was to always be a working actor. I'm so proud of that. Although, I have to be honest with you, I would love $20 million a movie, but <laughs> I love the fact that I can go to work every day somewhere. Damn right. Be happy and proud. You've gone through some pretty well-publicized personal problems over the years, particularly with regard to drug use, and you know, I hope you'll forgive me for bringing up the tough stuff, but you know, I always wonder what people like you and, and Robert Downey, people who have walked through the fire barefoot and come out the other side of it. I know it's I know it's hard to judge a situation just from just from outward appearances, but when you see someone like Lindsay Lohan just squandering her immense talent and seemingly throwing her entire life away for nothing, what goes through your mind? What do you think? I don't have an opinion because everybody does. You have to be very, very careful about that because you only get the facts through the press and the press only gets the facts through through whatever they get them through. So yeah. you don't know what you're really hearing. So having having gone through it myself, in fact, I'll be airing this December on a show called Celebrity Rehab, where I went into rehab because I've been smoking pot pretty much every day for a generation worth of time. And uh, I realized that it was hurting my memory. I was on a soap. I had to learn stuff overnight you know, very quickly and um, had to get off it. So uh, they offered me the rehab show, and I did it for that. But... To have an opinion, you have to have all the facts. I don't have all the facts, so I don't have an opinion. You know, to be fair, some of, most of your drug use was, was for medicinal purposes, yes? Well, yeah. I mean, you went through a pretty for... tough car crash several years ago, and, you know, you've been through some, some tough physical uh, 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 trauma. There's always excuses, but drug use is always an avoidance of, uh, of, of, like, of like dealing with what you should be dealing with. That's the bottom line. So give me a little tip-off on what's coming up for old Vance on Young and the Restless. I take Victor to the bank. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> that's, 
Okay, good enough. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I wish you the best of luck with your career. You you certainly don't need it. You're 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 doing fine without that. But uh, I tell you what, I'm a big fan of yours for a long time, and and I appreciate you speaking with me this morning. Brandon, thank you for the kind words. Have a great day. You too, sir. Thank you very much. And that's it for tonight, guys. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, thank you to Cameron Stalker. Thank you to Eric Roberts for popping in here and kicking off the third year of Brandon's Buzz and High Style. I thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you are listening, you already know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is really home base for this show. From there, you can listen to the show. You can download previous episodes of the show. You can uh, uh, leave comments. You can send emails. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. Click that button. That takes you to a full radio archive of every episode of this show. This is episode number 76. This and all previous 75 are available in the full radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me at iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Uh, Just type in Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. From there, you can uh, download individual old episodes from the show as podcasts, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm all over the place. I'm on iTunes. I'm on I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. I promise you. And I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. As always, I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check it out. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs>